in God's order and revealed in the Word of God, the church and the world are distinct entities. Saul enjoys lasting pleasures none but Zion's children know. There is a distinction. God saves sinners out of the world, not to remain off the world, but out of the world. We are to love, not the world. And the word is clear. We are not to be conformed to this world. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Hence, we can say that there is, biblically speaking, polarization between the church and the world. As a Christian, that is right and a proper distinction that must be, if you like, seen in evidence in our lives. We are not to be like this world. And that's applied in so many different directions. But polarization as a word is a word that you will hear time and time again in this coming year. We are here in this nation entering yet another election year. And polarization is often the watchword of those who are seeking to find some middle ground. And they point out how increasingly polarized this nation is. And of course, they're referring to a polarization between right and left. Now, whilst we unashamedly align right in moral issues, we don't believe the right is synonymous with the church. I hope you don't believe that. The world is present, both right and left, in terms of political thinking. Oh yes, by God's grace, those in the right align more closely with the Word of God than those in the left. That's not difficult to see in this present time. But we are the church and not the world. And the right can love the world as much as the left can. There is moral decline all around us in every sphere. So polarization, from a church perspective, is not right or left. It is the church and the world. And the question that comes to our minds then is how do we engage with this world, right or left? How do we engage as the church polarized from the world and yet to engage with the world? Are we to pursue isolation or are we to pursue confrontation? And if it's confrontation, what language can we use? What tones can we use? How can we do this? What's permissible? What is outside the sphere of biblical Christianity? Now, these are questions, again, not just for society. I'm just using this really as a, as a springboard for the thought. These same things are true in the church and in the home. The application of this goes way beyond society. But for now, how do we engage this world? Certainly, the letter of Paul to the Philippians is very relevant to this subject. It's a Roman colony, and there are thoughts of citizenship that run through this epistle. And Paul makes the point in chapter 3, verse 20, uh, that their conversation or their citizenship is in heaven. He recognizes that they are saved out of the world, and that they now have a, a new passport stamped with heaven. And they are those who do not belong to this world. Their citizenship is not in a Roman colony in Philippi. It is a heavenly citizenship. And yet, 
Whilst acknowledging that, Paul does not ignore their earthly responsibilities. And in chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Only let your conversation, and the word he uses there is again this word for citizenship, only let your citizenship be as it become of the gospel of Christ. In other words, as you live in Philippi under the oversight of Rome, make sure that your conversation, your living as a citizen, is worthy of the gospel. Not unto salvation, but out of salvation. And so this theme of living in the world and not of the world, it permeates this particular letter, and therefore it is relevant to our thinking today. You see, as Paul draws the letter to a close, again, chapter 4, there's these final, uh, really concluding exhortations. He's bringing things to a close and really answering the question as to, well, what are the things of first importance in church life? We might ask the question this way, what makes a church a church? What makes a church a church of Christ? And you could talk about functions, the preaching of the word, corporate worship and prayer and praise, the administration of the sacraments, church discipline. Those are the marks of a church in terms of function. But Paul is addressing not so much function as about the heart of the church, the family of the church. He's addressing issues of unity, addressing issues of joy, humility, dealing with trials, without and within. He's talking about his desires for really the health of the church, not what the church does, but what the church is. And so verse number five is the fourth of these exhortations where he says, let your moderation be known unto all men. And this brings these two thoughts together. There is, well, what is the church? Your moderation and yet a church that is existing in the world, it is known unto all men. And so the text brings us together. What does the church look like in the world? How does the church interact with the world? Well, it does so under this word, moderation. Christ-likeness in the world. And so today I want to deal with this subject. Christ-like moderation in the world. And you'll see in your outline just three, three simple words, and I've expanded upon them. We're going to look at definition, then display, and then finally, very briefly, just a comment on the doctrine that undergirds uh, this exhortation. But first of all, we've got to begin with definition. Because reading this in our English Bibles, in the King James Version, it says here, Let your moderation be known unto all men. We are very likely to become confused. Moderation is an old English word. Um, because of that, we've got to understand what does it mean in our own context today. And so I want to look at this word from two angles. Now, if you're observant, if you've got your bulletin in the, uh, in the outline of our of order of service today, you'll see I have two points with the same words. The word and the word. And young people, you'll see the difference. And the second word is Capitalized. So we're going to look at this word initially in the Word of God, and then in Christ, the incarnate Word. So first of all, though, the Word, the Word as it is used. Now, what does the word moderation mean? Again, I, I'm not sure how this word is used over here uh, the same way it may be used back, back home. I remember when I was a young person 
growing up and listening to adult conversation, particularly during this season of, of uh, too many feasts. And the comment would always be made when it came to, to after-dinner chocolates. You know, we used to have big tins of chocolates and they were full of nice colored wrappers and you don't get them quite like that over here, with all respect, you know. But anyway, that's a different story. But these chocolates were passed around after dinner, and the comment was made, well, I'll just take a few, because I'm going to take all things in moderation. And the idea was without excess. And moderation was often used when it came to, to food, that I can take everything in moderation, but nothing in excess. That is not what this text means. So get that idea away from your head as far as you possibly can. Although there is a connection in terms of the, the derivation of the concept, that's, that's not what this text is all about. Even in Webster's Dictionary, your own dictionary over here, it has the concept in modern English of extremes. Extremes of behavior. Extremes in terms of temperament, thereby encouraging moderation to mean calmness or temperateness. Again, that has the flavor of compromise attached to it. And so even historically, the moderates in various debates, historically and politically and religiously, the moderates were often looked as compromisers. They were the party that pursued the middle ground. It's also not what this word means. Although again, there are some connecting thoughts. Another dictionary, Collins Dictionary, says this, defining this moderation, the state of being moderate. Don't you love when dictionaries do that sort of thing? What is moderation? It is a state of being moderate. Uh, I know they're drawing the adjectives and the nouns and all together, but anyway, that's what they say. And it continues, so the state of being moderate, mildness, or balance. Again, this, this idea of without extremes. The synonyms they give are restraint, justice, fairness, composure, coolness, temperance, calmness, equanimity, reasonableness, mildness, justice, judiciousness, sedateness, moderateness. Another helpful one at the end there. You get all of these lists of synonymous terms for this word moderate. But what does it mean biblically? Well, again, you go to some of the Bible commentators. Hendrickson says this, there is not a single word in the English language that fully expresses the meaning of the original. God, thanks. <laughs> What hope do I have? There's not a single word in the modern English language that expresses the meaning of the original. Lenski, again, another very well-respected Greek uh, commentary, says this. He laments the lack of a good English equivalent for this noble term. So we're going to work on this one, folks. I can't give you one modern word and say, this is what I mean. Or this is what Paul means more importantly. So the challenge is, well, how do we determine the meaning of words in our Bibles? And this is important for you all in your studies. How do you know what a word means? Well, sometimes you think of the etymology of the word, where the word comes from. Uh, this, this word itself is two Greek words put together, and it has this sense of fitting upon. The word fitting with the preposition upon, and so it has it been suitable or proper. Again, not overly helpful. Outside the Bible, outside Scripture, it was used in a legal context to the idea of yielding your rights to another. And that's maybe getting closer towards the, the concept here. This idea of you would, you would yield your personal rights to facilitate the rights of others. 
But whether it be the word itself or it's used in secular context, the most important thing is how does the Bible use the word? You've always got to come back here. Again, sometimes you hear your preacher say this word means this. But the most important thing is what does the Spirit of God make of this word? In inspiration, how does the Spirit of God use this word? So now you're going to work again. Please turn, first of all, to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to see this word used in various settings. It's only used maybe five times as an adjective, and it's a couple of times as a noun. So it's not a, it's not a major task to do a Bible survey of this word. The first time is 1 Timothy chapter 3 in the verse number 3. Again, these are the qualifications, of course, of a bishop or an elder. Not given to wine, no striker, not greedy, a filthy looker, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. Now, one of the ways in which you can get really a real sense of a meaning of a Bible word, particularly in Paul's writings, is to see how the word is used in contrast. No striker, not greedy, a filthy looker, but patient, not a brawler. And our word moderation here is the word patient in verse number three. And therefore it stands in contradistinction to a quarrelsome, striving spirit, not a brawler. And again, the word brawler, here, we're going to see it in Titus chapter three also. This word brawler does not mean using your fists. It's not describing fighting in that sense. It's a contentious spirit. The word brawler here is made of two words in the original without patience. So it's a negative concept, but this idea is it's a contentious, striving spirit. And so turn to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Again, here you've got it again within terms of qualifications of the Lord's servant. To speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers. But, here's our word this time, but gentle. And how is gentleness expressed? How is moderation expressed? Showing all meekness unto all men. So there's two helpful concepts here. On the one hand, this word moderation, gentle here in our text, is contrasted with being a brawler, being contentious, a striving of personality. And the other thing, the positive, is showing all meekness unto all men. And then turn across to James chapter 3. And again, you're going to see very quickly here, there is a consistence of usage here. This comes very, very clearly as this is what the word means and is used by the Holy Spirit. James chapter 3, and you'll find our word in the verse number 17. And it is the word gentle again. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. Or word gentle is used there in this list of heavenly spiritual divine wisdom. But the contrast, verse 15, this wisdom descended not from above. What is that wisdom? If you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not. This wisdom is not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. And the emphasis is, for where envying and strife is, 
there is confusion in every, every evil work. And so this word moderation is again contrasted with this thought of being striving. Contentious, striving spirit is the opposite of this word moderation. Then one more text, First Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 and the verse number 18. Here again, words of instruction given to employees or servants, slaves to the master, servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good, and here's our word coming now, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. Here you've got to define a word by defining another word. The word froward here, actually, that word comes into our modern English language with the word scoliosis. People with the curvature of the spine, they have a scoliosis, and this word froward means to be crooked. And you, you know that means not just financially crooked, but, but just a difficult personality. Hard to deal with, that crooked spirit. And so the servant is told, you make sure you submit, even though, you're, even though your master be crooked and difficult and contentious, you submit to them. But it's in contrast again with our word gentle. Do you see that? Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the opposite, namely the froward. So that's how the adjective is used in these various ways describing people in various contexts, and we're getting to see some idea of what this word moderation may mean. It's used as a noun in Acts chapter 24 regarding Felix and his clemency. Again, it's used in that context there. And as we'll see very shortly, it's used regarding Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I have one other parallel verse for you to see. Why don't you turn, please, to James chapter 5. Now, the same word is not used here, so please... Understand that it's a different word, but the text is so parallel that it gives us some idea, perhaps, of how a different apostle has this thinking in his mind using a various word, another word. The exhortation here is, again, how do the people of God live in times of persecution? That they are struggling, they are being persecuted, and that they are finding themselves in a difficult situation in the world. And verse number 8 says this, Be also patient. Establish your heart, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. And you'll, you'll see the parallel here. We, we've got it over in Philippians chapter 4. Moderation, the Lord is at hand. Here now in James 5, the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. The exhortation in Philippians 4, moderation. Here in James 5, patience. And the word patience here has the sense of being long-suffering, of a forbearing spirit in the face of trouble and persecution. So, what are we dealing with here? Well, the synonyms of this word moderation are words like meekness and gentleness and patience and forbearance, being approachable and easily entreated. The antonyms, the opposite words, are words like contentious, quick to wrath, a brawler, harsh in spirit. You've got the opposites, you've got the similars, and you get this word moderation. Martin, again, the commentary says this, this is a disposition of gentleness, 
and fair-mindedness to other people in spite of their faults. Hendrickson gives a list of synonyms. Remember, Hendrickson said there's no one word, so he gives a number of words. Forbearance, yieldedness, geniality, kindliness, gentleness, sweet reasonableness, considerateness, charitableness, mildness, magnanimity, generosity. So in simple terms, modern words, perhaps words like gentleness, reasonableness, graciousness may get somewhere to defining this word as it is used here. That's the word. What about the word capitalized? Uppercase W for the word. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm taking the time to try to understand this word because it's not a word that you're going to have uh, on the tip of your tongue readily. So, how is it used? 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and the verse number 1. Now, I, Paul, myself beseech you by the meekness, and here's our word coming now, and gentleness of Christ. The word gentleness used there in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 1 is the word for moderation that's used in Philippians chapter 4, verse 5. Gentleness. Again, note it is connected with the word for meekness. Meekness and gentleness. And it's used by Paul as he brings words of rebuke and challenge and censure to the people of God in Corinth. And yet he comes to them with rebuke and yet does so in the spirit of Christ, namely the spirit of meekness. And gentleness. Now, when you think of this again over in Philippians chapter 4, this all fits together very simply. See, when you connect these thoughts, the text in Philippians 4 says this Let your moderation, let your moderation. In other words, he is speaking of something which is true of the believer. He does not say to them, be moderate, but let what is true be manifest. This is your moderation. You possess it as a Christian, as a believer. Let it be manifest to all men. In other words, moderation is something that is true of the believer to some degree. Because when converted, the Spirit of God indwells us. And when the Spirit of God indwells us, He makes us more like Christ. And if Christ is marked by gentleness and Christ is formed in us, then the believer is marked by the similar spirit of moderation or gentleness. So that's how the word, uppercase W, also helps us define this term. So what is Christ's conduct? How do we see gentleness in our Savior? Well, of course, we see Him as gentle in his conduct before his enemies, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. That spirit of gentleness, even in the presence of those who were his enemies. We think of his compassion to the poor and the weak and the needy. Even prophetically, in Isaiah, quoted in Luke chapter 4, he hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. You think of Christ with the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. He calls her sin, sin, but treats her with such compassion and kindliness and gentleness 
despite her sin. He shows her mercy and kindness. Now, the church is not called to scorn and treat the sinner with condemnation, but to seek them, to show compassion to them. Now, I, I know where some of you may be going already in your mind. What about Christ and the hypocrites? Some fierce words used by Christ in terms of the religious hypocrites. They say, yes, our text will help us going forward. It's not the whole story, but it should not be neglected from the story. And yes, Christ does. He uses very severe words to those who are religious hypocrites. But in the church, we often get things back to front. We are soft on the hypocrite and harsh towards the sinner. Christ was kind toward the sinner and firm towards the hypocrite. He is gentle with the disciples. A bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench. He's gentle with you here today, dear child of God, as he is with me. If he wasn't gentle, where would it be today? You know how many faults we have? How many times we've fallen away, gone and bypassed meadow? How many times we've spoken and thought and acted in a manner against the word of God, and yet Christ has been so kind to us and gentle toward us? How many times did we deserve the fiercest thrashing with the rods? And then he came with a still small voice. The gentleness of Christ in every treatment of his disciples. And so, this is this definition of moderation. In every sphere of life, we are seeking to make Christ known to the church and in the world. Gentleness, Christ likeness. You see, to not be contentious does not mean you're guilty of compromise. I'm going to see very, very shortly that this spirit is not akin to compromise, but it is a Christ-like manner in the world. So secondly, the display. If you like the manifestation of this moderation, this conduct is to be made visible before all men. Look what the text says. Let your moderation be known unto all men. Let this moderation be displayed. Now, the major question is this, and again, this will, people will divide on this issue. Is this text requiring moderation to be shown within the church only or within the church and also in the world? Language of all men can be used in those various ways. So is it an exhortation for life in the church? Or is it an exhortation to life by the church in the world? Well, before we get there, please note this is an internal grace. We are to display something, I've said already, that is true already. It is your moderation. Now, in the language of Timothy and Titus, elders are to show this to a greater degree and with a greater measure of consistency. All the qualifications of the elders are of that nature. 
They're not unique to elders, but they are to be shown with a greater measure of consistency and to a greater degree. But it's true for all believers. Again, I note the command is not to be moderate, but let that which is true be seen. And the challenge here, and I, I want you to be clear on this. My challenge to you today is not to change your personality. It, it is to show more of Christ. It is that what is true of you, believer, will be more clearly manifest in the coming days. Of what is true would abound more and more. You see, if this is true of Christ, and it is, and if this is commanded of believers, and it is, it is essentially a command to display a Christ-like spirit. And we can be very selective in looking at our lives and saying, I'm like Christ in this area and that area. And so let me pause just for a second and ask you the question, are you more like Christ now than you were this time last year? That's what sanctification is. It is Christ being formed in us, and therefore we should be more like Christ today than this day last year. Progress in Christ's likeness. And that's what Paul's exhorting here. He said, let your Christ's likeness be manifest. And so it's an internal grace that is externally evidenced. It is something that is visible to others. This word always refers, please get this, it always refers to how we treat others. The spirit involved here is meekness. Moderation is displayed in terms of how we treat other people. Moderation is something we show in our interaction with others in our lives. Again, the question I've asked is this. Is this shown within the church? Or shown both within and without the church? Now, in the context of Philippians, with unity so prevalent, it is clear that Paul is speaking of the conduct of believers in the church. You take four, chapter 4, verse number 2. He's beseeching Eudius and Syndicate. They be of the same mind in the Lord. And clearly that's going to involve a moderate spirit, a gracious, a gentle spirit. Chapter 4, verse 2. Or sorry, chapter 2, verse 4. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. He is exhorting this in the church. But the term all men, generally as used by Paul, refers to all sorts of people. No matter their race or their gender or whether they are saved or unsaved. You see, turn please to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Just going to show you two references where, where, where Paul uses language like this in a general sense beyond the church. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Again, the language there is not that you pray for every single person who's alive in the world today. It's all sorts of people, including, verse 2, kings and those in authority, etc., it's an exhortation to, to not narrow your prayers to only be for a particular group of people, for your own, your own kinsmen or your, your own gender or your own social status, whatever it may be, all sorts of people. And then also back across in Galatians chapter 6. In Galatians chapter 6 in the verse number 10. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto 
all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. And there you see immediately this idea of being all men goes beyond the church. So my suggestion to you, in fact, more than suggestion, my conviction is that Philippians chapter 4 is exhorting us to show a gentleness of spirit, a gracious spirit, both within and without the church of Christ. This is a Christ-like attitude, a Christ-like interaction that will govern all of our interactions with people in this world. It's a Christian grace to be displayed before saved and unsaved. A Christian grace that is visible to others. Quite a few of the commentators in Philippians, uh, they must borrow from each other. I suppose all preachers do. And quite a few of them refer to a pagan observer looking at the church in its earliest years. This is a historical document that goes back to the early church. And this pagan observer is commenting upon the nature of the New Testament church, just after the years of the apostles. And what is noteworthy is this pagan observer sees the church's influence in the world in this way. More, this is a quotation, more especially at those points which demanded some sacrifice of oneself for the weak, for the aged, for little children, and even for the dead, end quote. An early pagan observer looking at the New Testament church sees the church's influence in how they handled the needy and the vulnerable in their society as they showed a gentleness of spirit in the world. This is countercultural. You live in a nation, we live in a nation where dog eats dog. And the reason this text comes to my mind for tonight or for today is that I think we need to call ourselves back to a Christ-like spirit in the world. We can be unlike the world in so many ways and yet mimic the world and how we treat others in our society, in our churches and in our families. And the ungodly look at our families, they look at our church, they look at our treatment in society, and they say, you're just like we are. We seek our own interests, and we don't care who we trample along the way. This is a call, an earnest exhortation to Christ-likeness in the world. This presupposes the church is visible in the world. It presupposes that we're engaged in the world. We're not isolationists. But also we're not confrontationalists. We are Christ in the world. We are those who must manifest a gentle spirit so that if ungodly people look at our attitudes and our words and they hear us and they see us, that they will see Christ in us in these terms. They will not see us pulling ourselves apart, but see a kindness and a gentleness of spirit with each other, including with those with whom we may differ. You see, you are gentle by the grace of God and the Spirit. Therefore, let your gentleness, your moderation, your graciousness be shown to all men. 
Ye wear darkness, now your light. Therefore be lights in the world. The, the very same concept. And so it's an exhortation that our attractiveness be shown in the world. Because we are attractive as we show Christ. It's a serious matter. Such a demeanor will present Christ in the world. And I believe the church will stand out in being distinct from the world in such a conduct. Now here there must be a word of qualification. I've taken all this now. Ooh, five after twelve. All this time to emphasize this matter of a gentle, gracious spirit that I think you all know is not what's happening in the world at the present time. The difficult thing is this. Moderation is not tolerance. The issue here is manner, not matter. It is not that we compromise our convictions or our beliefs, but that we hold those convictions and those beliefs in a proper Christ-like manner. You see, I am fearful in some ways, because in every church and every ministry, there are many who by nature are timid and fearful, and they will take this text to excuse their tolerance of sin all around them, in their families, in the church, or in society. And they'll, they'll take this text and say, well, oh, thank you, preacher, that, just, that takes a burden off my shoulders. Uh, I can simply say nothing when I'm faced with sin. And it comes a, a byword for toleration, for compromise. No, 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 no. Please don't think that for one second. This is not a call to compromise. It must not be used to exclude compromise. It is clear in this epistle that moderation does not suggest a compromise towards sin or doctrinal error. It's not a toleration of wickedness. Paul calls the world, in chapter 2, verse 15, he calls it crooked and perverse. That's what he calls it. He's not suggesting that the world becomes his friend. That's not the point. In chapter 3, he makes the point regarding false doctrine. He calls them dogs, evil workers. Those are not complimentary terms regarding those who are teaching doctrines away from the Word of God. In chapter 3, verse 19, he refers to those whose God is their belly, who glory, whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. He doesn't mince his words when it comes to error. You think of the same apostle, turn back to Galatians chapter 2. You think of the very same apostle. This is the apostle who, when it comes to Peter's errors, Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. See, apostle, he was bold enough to confront publicly another apostle regarding his errors, regarding the practice, the practice of justification. Now, this text in Galatians chapter 2, however, is often misused. In a fundamentalist reformed spirit, it is sometimes used to excuse all manner of public condemnation of this or that with whatever language people feel free to use. The apostle who withstood Peter to the face in Galatians chapter 2 is the same apostle who in the final chapter begins with the words, 
Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. I don't believe for a second that Paul was rude and disrespectful when he spoke to Peter publicly. He addressed him in a spirit of meekness. And what is the outcome of meekness according to our studies today? Meekness brings out this spirit of moderation. So what we're seeing here is a manner of dealing with differences and yet dealing with them in a gentle and a gracious spirit. One last reference, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Just to, if you like, bring this point to a conclusion, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and the verse number 24. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. It is an exhortation to even when we're dealing with people with whom we differ, we do so in a gentle, Christ-like spirit, compassion to the lost, and particularly gentleness to those with whom we're in unity in Christ Jesus. And let this be shown to all men. Now, I have... I feel like I've set this exhortation in the context of the church and the world. But the application, of course, goes so much further. It goes to the home. Do the world, when they look upon our home, do they see a Christ-like spirit in our dealing with each other? Men, if your unsaved work colleagues were privy to your conversation with your wife in the kitchen, would they see Christ there? Wives, would your friends, unconverted friends, if they saw your words to your husband, would they see Christ there? Parents, if your unconverted friends saw how you spoke to your children, would they see Christ there? Church member, if the unconverted come into our midst and they see our interaction in the lobby, will they see Christ there? You see, we, we are so very, very quick to excuse some of these types of sins. We'll deal with the, the ugly sins out in the world, but we'll allow a contentious, striving spirit to exist in our hearts and we'll show it to our wives and our husbands and our children and in the church. And we're not displaying Christ. This is not the whole story, but it's one story. And this year we're entering, this year as a church here, and I guarantee you, you'll be confronted all around you with a contentious, striving spirit, sometimes over things that are of tremendous importance. So we're not minimizing the matter, we're discussing the manner. And my exhortation, my plead, is by God's grace that we'll be Christ-like in the midst of the chaos of a contentious world. More like Christ, 
less like our ungodly neighbors, only by the grace of God in our lives. Now, I said very briefly the doctrine. The text ends, the Lord is at hand. Again, our time is gone. Does this refer to the Lord being near every believer? He's always with us. Is that the idea of the exhortation here? The Lord sees us and knows us, therefore we should display Christ. Well, perhaps more than likely it's referring to his return. We looked at the cross, reference from James chapter 5. His coming draws nigh. The apostles lived continually in the awareness of Christ's return. Every generation conscious the Lord will return because he's promised he'll return. And therefore what you're seeing here is a reminder to us all that the Lord's return is a governing principle in our lives for two reasons. When the Lord returns, the lost have no more hope. Therefore, we must show Christ in the world. The urgency of the church here is a reminder that there's a time limit for the church to minister in the world, to be lights in this world. The time is coming when this world will be folded up. And there, there is no more salvation. Now is the day of salvation. And therefore, it is imperative that we see ourselves having the responsibility to show Christ in the world. And that we are dishonoring Christ when our manner is not reflective of His grace. Then we're not like Christ. He is returning. I'll bring all things to an end. Of course, the other application of this is that because He's returning, we are exhorted by Christ to be about His business, to occupy till He comes. But the exhortation of our Savior and our Lord is not only to do His work, but to do His work in His way and in His manner. Not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. We need to pray for each other. We need to ask God to give us grace and wisdom in our homes, in our church, in the workplace, and in society. But ultimately, the outcome of those prayers is that Christ will be glorified, that sinners will be converted. That's our burden. So let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord's at hand. Amen. Let's please close in prayer. Seeking the Lord. Now, if you're in this meeting today and you realize that the Lord has put his finger upon a sin in your life, and you know nothing of this grace. You find yourself as being a contentious individual. You find yourself constantly striving. Examine your heart today. Make sure that you know the help of the Spirit of God in your life. That you're saved. You're born again in the Spirit of God. Eternal Father, we look to Thee again. We thank You for Your Word. Thank You for inspiring the Apostle to pen these words. And we realize, O oh Lord, that whilst they don't give the whole picture for the church and the world... Certainly we cannot ignore this. We can't ignore this very solemn obligation put upon the church in Philippi and therefore to all of us. May Christ be formed in us. Christ be seen through us. Christ be glorified in us. Grant us the help of the Spirit of God to that end.
Bless, O oh God, today. Remember the nursing home ministry. Help us to gather again this evening. May we see Jesus. May the word of God be a blessing to our souls. We pray in his name. Amen.